you have your Bibles tonight and would like to turn to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. And then the fall. So I, I intended to cover the whole chapter tonight. That was my goal, but the more I study it, the more I realize that's not going to be possible for me to do that. So um, that's on me, but we're, we're going to look at this in at least two phases. The first tonight, we're just going to focus on the fall itself. I, I do. I think that's important, just these first seven verses tonight. Next will be God's response to the fall. There's the rest of the text. What happens here tonight in this passage? We know this is going to reverberate, not just through the rest of Scripture, but through all human history. There is knowledge that we as human beings were never created to have. The knowledge of good and evil, which is the ability to discern between the two. Think about that. We were never meant, we weren't created to know what evil was. And ever since the garden, the havoc that has been wreaked upon mankind stems almost completely from our attempts to identify what is good and what is evil. And that changes all the time. We weren't intended to have this knowledge. We can't handle it. You understand that, right? Woe to you who call good evil and evil good because we weren't ever intended to tell the difference, which is why it's always changing because we can't handle it. We became our own frame of reference. That's the main problem. And suffering and death have been the inevitable result ever since. In our desire to be autonomous, instead of have God ruling over us in paradise, we sinned against him. And while we don't see it in the text itself until next week, the fall from paradise and perfection and rest that results from this is not the only thing that happens in this text. They will not only be cursed here in chapter 3, they will be covered here. But first, we have to fall. Or comes the fall. So let's pray. Father, I ask that you would truly, Lord God, do a supernatural work in our hearts tonight and enable us to listen to this passage and understand what you're telling us and teaching us through it. Please help me speak clearly. Help me speak correctly. Lord, help everyone to listen. And I pray and ask these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So let's let's go right into it. Look at verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. What made the serpent crafty? The second part of the verse. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? What makes the serpent crafty is seen in the way he approaches Eve and questions her about the command, the prohibition that God had given them. And in her willingness to even engage in dialogue with the serpent, which you could go down a rabbit hole there. How, how did they talk? Did animals talk? I mean, in other words, why doesn't this? Why doesn't Eve say, "What? Like, like there's a snake and you're talking to me? There, there's none of that. We don't, we don't know." But her willingness to even engage in dialogue. The Bible is hinting there at the failure that's about to come. This is an animal. 
Human beings, Adam and Eve, should be exercising dominion over the serpent, right? There should be a get behind me here, but we don't see that. Look at the word actually there. That's interesting. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The point there is not to question what God actually said. The serpent knows, obviously, serpent knows a lot, but the serpent obviously knows that Eve knows what the Lord said. So the point is not to question whether or not God actually said something. It's to open up a whole new possibility to Eve that she never considered before. This is crafty. It would be, be like a man approaching a married woman at a bar or something and saying, are you actually married? You, you, you see that? It's, it's not to find out whether or not the woman is married. It's, it's to introduce the possibility, what if you weren't married? Or something along those lines. So she knows what God said. Look, look, at, look at two and three. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. The serpent's angle is to get Eve thinking that maybe God's prohibition here is not a good one. That's why the serpent alters the actual command. God did not say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden. God said exactly the opposite of that. They may eat of every tree in the garden except one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The serpent's question very craftily focuses on the prohibition part of the command while overlooking or downplaying the abundant provision that God had provided to them in 2.9 and 2.18, a boundary is altered to become a threat. Do you see that? A boundary that was set that was good is now a threat. God's rule, which was given, which was a given that God would be in charge of what he made, is no longer a boundary of what is safe and whole and his intentions for his creation to flourish. Now it's a barrier that needs to be overcome. Right, so he doesn't create new truth per se. The devil can't create out of nothing. We know that's who this is as scripture unfolds. But the serpent can't create out of nothing. Only God can do that. So he has to work with what's there. So he twists it. That's how the serpent tempts her. There are other possibilities, other ways that you and Adam might live. And maybe they're better is what he's implying. And what's that rooted in? What's happening here? Questioning the clarity of God's word and the goodness of God's rule. Questioning the clarity of God's word and the goodness of God's rule. But it's not only the serpent. This is what, for me, is one of the hardest things to understand. It's not only the serpent who is misquoting God here. That's what the whole fall is rooted in, misquoting God. Okay, Eve is doing the same thing. Look, look at verse 3. Notice what she said. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Eve has already added to the word of the Lord in her own mind. God never said they couldn't touch it. She's made the command stricter than God had by adding the stipulation to it that they couldn't touch it. Again, God never said they couldn't touch it. Beloved, don't miss that. Don't miss this. She has added to the command of God to keep herself from breaking it. And that's the reason why she broke it. She changed it. 
she pontificated on her own apart from simply trusting that the word of God alone was sufficient. She has upped his strictness, which doesn't help her honor him. It makes her question him. She, and she's now in a place where because she's questioning or adding to the word of God. Let's say she isn't questioning it. She's just added to it. It leads to sin when she does that. It doesn't lead to obedience. It doesn't keep Eve pure. Don't try to out-righteous the word of the Lord. Don't add to it. We, we rightfully so get very nervous and, and uh, defensive in a good way if people try to take away from the word of the Lord. And we should, absolutely. It is just as, if not more dangerous, because it's what the fall itself is rooted in, to add, however, to the word of the Lord. To speak when God has been silent. To put a comma where God has put a period. It's very dangerous. Very dangerous. We hear hear this kind of thinking all the time. Well, just in case. God's word was sufficient where it stopped. So the Bible says that we can, but should we? No, stop. What, where's that coming from? If God would have let me write the Bible, people would be a lot better off, right? If, you know, I, I could have made it a little more, if this is prohibited, then maybe we shouldn't do this either. No, 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 no. No, the word of God is sufficient. That's the serpent taking hold of us when we start talking like that. The word of God is revealed is sufficient for his people all the time just as it stands. We fell because we tried to set additional boundaries. We've got to see that. And now the serpent, because of that, he's hurt. So you see that? He's heard. So now he sees his opening and he pounces. Look at four and five. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. God is your enemy, Eve. He's withholding something from you. He's afraid of something, of of you getting something. The serpent says that God wants to keep Adam and Eve from becoming like him, which is why Satan rebelled, if you'll remember from Isaiah, Ezekiel, I believe. It's very interesting that that's the tact he takes to tempt what God has created. But he, he says that God wants to keep Adam and Eve from becoming like him. I think it's envy in reference to knowing good and evil. Referring again to the ability to discern for ourselves what is good and what is evil without God being the ultimate frame of reference. What does that reveal? What what is the Bible telling us here? To act autonomously is to act like God. Right? The knowledge of good and evil was not originally given to human beings because we didn't need it. In our most perfect state, it is not that we had chosen good over evil. It was that we were unaware there was such a thing. God's word was sufficient as given to keep them from evil. His word would protect them. So, by the way, we are are closest to that perfect state when we simply take God at his word. When we just believe it. But the serpent was crafty. He knew that if we were not simply taking God at his word as revealed... He could go directly against it and it wouldn't alarm her or throw up a red flag because he just completely twists 
what God says here and she doesn't see it. Why did he do that? Because she's already, he heard her alter it. She was like, there it is. I can, I can say whatever I want now. She, she is not trusting fully in the word is revealed. So I'm going to take a shot. I'm going to compound. I'm going to add to it or I'm going to change it. So he flat out lied. You shall not surely die. That's what God said would happen. And when he said it, when he lied to her, she didn't even see it. She didn't even recognize it. You will not surely die. The, the real issue here, Eve, is that God doesn't want you to be like him. He's, he's lying to you. But the serpent is the one who lies. Remember, he's the father of lies. But the serpent lies while the serpent is speaking the truth. Right? Serpents have forked tongues. He is correct that God did not want them to have the knowledge of good and evil. But that was a good thing. Right? Satan is making it seem to Eve like, mm, he's withholding something. No, it was a good thing for us. Not all. What God made was good. This was a good thing that we did not have this knowledge. He's twisting it to turn it into a threat to her. You're missing something. And he does it while speaking the truth. He's correct. Like I said, God did not want them to have the knowledge of good and evil. We know that because God forbade them from eating it, but he is lying when he says that they will not die. Again, God's word is that they would surely die. Satan lies with the truth. And since Eve doesn't know the difference between good and evil, that's how chapter 2 ended. They're totally innocent. This has never happened again. All right, apart from Christ, who even then it's, it's not the same kind of innocence, but this is 225 has never happened again. Eve doesn't know the difference between good and evil. She didn't need to, to resist evil. She needed to trust the word of the Lord to resist evil. But because she doesn't know the difference, she believes him. She should have went right to the Lord. Or really, she should have went right to Adam to verify the words of the serpent. That was the only way she could have known the difference between good and evil. Instead, she trusts her desires. Look at verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Servant's argument was not an intellectual one. You notice that it's an emotional one, right? It's not point counterpoint. It's not back and forth. It's you won't die. You'll be like God. He's appealing to something, not facts. All it took was one sentence. Why? Because there's no need to justify his claim. Right? He's the, the, the hook is in. He is suggesting a new set of possibilities for her. He has appealed to the side of her that is revealed exists in verse 6. She can become self-sufficient. She can be more than what she is right now. And she can know good and evil. She can have what she now must think God has withheld from her. So let's pull back for a moment. Evil didn't exist in creation until this moment. Well, what is evil according to the text? What is it really? Evil is the human self independent from God. The existence of that is evil. The presence of that is evil. Evil isn't just the actions that we do. Evil is the belief inside that we can act independently from God 
and be better off than we would be if we did live in complete dependence on him. That is where evil began in our world. The knowledge of evil only happens at the exact moment she acts contrary to God. She didn't know what it was before. I love what McDavid says here. Now that there's distance between us and God, evil is the name given to our tendency to live on our side of that divide. The fruit looked edible, it looked safe, it looked good, and it promised something she didn't previously have, wisdom. So she ate it. 1 John 2.16, those three things are the fuel of every temptation. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Nothing is advanced beyond Eden as far as why we are tempted successfully by sin so often. And she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Adam had been present the whole time. In verse 1, just by the way, you is plural in Hebrew. Both Adam and Eve accepted the new possibility. So the serpent in his temptation didn't go immediately after the head of the race. Isn't that interesting? He didn't go after the man because the serpent was crafty. He knew the way to damage the head was to go after the body. Trainers say this to boxers all the time. Kill the body and the head will die. Keep pummeling away at the body. The head will die. You'll get your knockout. You'll get him out of the fight. By tempting Eve to sin with Adam standing right there was the strategy of the serpent all along. Why? Because the serpent knew that the head of the race was sinning by standing there quietly and not intervening. He knew he could get the whole race cursed. And of course, he thought killed immediately. What a, what a sword in God's heart that would have been if right after they're created it in some span of time, then he has to kill all of them. What a way to mock him and laugh at him as a failure. If he could get the man to skirt his responsibility to lead her, he wins. So he thinks. He should have covered for her. Adam should have covered for her. Adam should have stepped in. Adam should have silenced the serpent, exercised dominion, obeyed, listened to the word of the Lord. Not because Eve was stupid, but because he's the head. That's the design. The whole, the bride needs the obedience of the husband to survive. That's, that's what we see. The whole human race then, realize this. The whole human race is not cursed first because Eve ate the fruit. God is going to blame Adam in a few verses. The whole human race is cursed because Adam didn't act as the head of his wife. That's why the whole human race has been cursed. Right? Because he didn't protect his wife. We'll find that down in verse 17. Implying that humanity needs a head who will trust God's word and act accordingly, or humanity is doomed, will die. Our first response to temptation was to sin. Right? You want to know how humans do with temptation? What happened the very first time they were tempted? It was even hinted at, well, they they blew it. 
Because here's something being revealed in Genesis 3. And I, I need you to stick with me because we're going to get in the weeds a little bit. But I, I, I'm just asking you to hear me out. Okay? Even when our wills were free, they were prone to disobedience. Right? I mean, that, that our first response to temptation was to sin. You see how badly we need a Savior in this text. Right at the beginning of the Bible. If we could not resist temptation when our wills were free of being affected by a sin nature, how will we ever obey when they are infected by a sin nature? What do we really believe we're capable of without divine intervention? Adam and Eve were the only two human beings besides Jesus that ever had a free will. All right, And I, I, I know that just we, we value free will more than we value anything, obviously. Right? That's, that's the fall. So when we hear that, right now inside we're going, no, 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 whoa, 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 whoa. What are we going to do? We're not going to dump texts in to our mind. We're going to dump human philosophy in our minds as to why if there isn't free will, then no, get your truth from the Bible. Adam and Eve were the only two human beings besides Jesus who had a free will. Now, as the Bible says, we are born dead in trespasses and sins, slaves to our nature, and children of wrath like all the rest of mankind. That doesn't mean that you can't choose what you want and you're some kind of restrained robot. That's a horrible straw man argument that we only believe because we still desire so much to be autonomous. Unbelievable. We, we've, we've bought the free will thing hook, line, and sinker because the serpent's back might be broken, but he can still talk. And he has always been and will always be until Jesus shuts him up for the last time and he will crafty. We better cry out for mercy or we will not be saved. Our wills are free to choose whatever they want. Absolutely. We're free agents in that regard. But because of this moment, those free wills are never going to choose God unless God says, let there be light. Unless God says, Lazarus, come forth to our dead souls. The Bible never teaches, the Bible never teaches that for a choice to be free, it can't be governed by a sovereign God. The Bible doesn't teach that. The Enlightenment teaches that. Do you know how many things we believe that didn't show up until like the 19th century? And we just believe them. We take them as gospel. No, no, it, it would be unfair for God to hold people accountable if there isn't free will. You, you got to read Romans. You, you, you need to read Romans. You need to explain how God can do things like raise up Assyria to invade Israel and then judge Israel or judge Assyria for invading Israel. How do you explain that? Right? Again, I'm not saying I know how to explain it. That's my point. Either God is free and we are not, or what do you make of the Bible? Right? I mean, if, if, can you imagine if we were the sovereign ones? If it was if it was us that made the final call on everything, what promise did God ever make that we can believe he'll keep? If, if we're the ultimate arbiter, right? 
What, what if when he returns, we, the earth says, you know what? We don't want this. We don't want this. Oh, well, I don't want to violate your free will. My bad. I'll go back up. Right? Do you understand, do you understand the implications of what we believe without ever questioning it? Let God be true and every man a liar. And again, do we honestly think fair is a word we understand at all as we sit here tonight tainted by the sin of a man that messed up what might be millions of years before any of us ever even existed? How is it fair? We're going to deal on the scale of fair. How is it fair that you and I are culpable for what Adam did? How is that fair? If our main line of argumentation is fair, who's defining fair? And again, I know we've said this before, but be very careful what you wish for. Because fair means we all go to hell. That's what's fair. What's unfair is Jesus paying the cost for a bunch of guilty people in his own flesh and blood. Right? You see how that's, how that's God, God answers the moral quandary of how can you be culpable for what Adam did all these years before in the same way that I can be righteous based on what Jesus did when I'm guilty as sin, literally. Right? You see, see what God does? God works on a different scale. That's, that, that's the point of this. His, his ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. And when the conflict inside comes as we try to wrestle with that and understand it and we're tempted to cry out, how can it be like that? God, why is it like this? All he's going to say is, ultimately, who are you, O oh man, that I made from the dust? To answer back to me. Right? That's Romans. That's Paul anticipating our objections to the truth that he's teaching in Romans. Right? It's all right in front of us. But we won't listen. Why? Because we've been fooled by the serpent to think that God's gift to us is to be autonomous. No, it wasn't. That's what happened when we fell. We were never meant to have the knowledge of the need for choices. Do you see that? We, because we've been duped, value it more than anything. The greatest thing. No, it's not the greatest thing. It's the result of the fall. Now we have to figure out the difference between good and evil. God created us to receive truth from him. Not to decide for ourselves the difference between good and evil, right and wrong, wise and foolish. Right? That was paradise when we weren't making that call. God's gift to us in salvation that he accomplishes for us and gives to us through the gift of faith because our wills would never have chosen him. Right? That, that's salvation. He's saving me not just from what I have done, but from what I cannot do. Right? It's, it's, it's a miracle. You know this inside. You know this. How much say did you have in your conception? None. You don't exist because you chose to. You exist because two other people chose to, right? It's all in the template. We have a song. That, that's why we have a song to sing when we gather. We're singing about a miracle that is taking place. We're not celebrating our choices. We're celebrating his act. It's beautiful. It just flattens everything out. It's beautiful. A miracle occurred that saved me. That's how I got saved. Let there be light, breath of life into dust. That's how I got saved. This is what happened when we tried to be free. 
we fell. They wanted knowledge. They wanted autonomy, freedom to decide for themselves rather than trust. Well, now they have it. Now they have it. Look at verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Both their eyes were opened. They knew immediately for the first time that what they had done was wrong. They'd never felt that before. That had never been there before. Now they have the knowledge of the difference between good and evil. Right? It's a, it's a tragic thing to have. Between being submitted to the word of the Lord in trust and joy and rejecting his word in the name of being autonomous, that's the essence of evil. From taking a cookie from the jar to genocide, it all starts, I will decide what is right. Me, nobody else. Me. It all started right here. And while we thought we would be better off on our own, which again, how do you get better off than absolute beauty, an unending source of food, work that actually connects you with the divine, perfection, paradise, nakedness without shame. How do you improve on that? But what's the first thing our autonomy gave to us when it had promised freedom? What's the first thing autonomy gave? Shame. Right? This is Eve. What happened? This is not the way it should be. Don't look at me. You see it? 225, they were both naked and unashamed. A couple verses later, no, 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 don't, don't look, what's, what's wrong, right? Don't look at me. This is an absolute tragedy. There's never been a bigger tragedy than this apart from the cross. And what is the autonomous human's first response to shame? Self-salvation. Look at the second part of seven. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. One step removed from absolute perfection. And we are completely estranged from and terrified of God and each other. One step out. You ever, you ever walked in on a child uh, doing something, they, the little ones doing something they know they're not supposed to be doing, and you catch them, and imme- what do they do? immediately they do this. Right? Right? That's fig leaves. Like, this will do it. You can't see me. I didn't do anything. Right? Beloved, I, I, I want us to notice something. The knowledge of good and evil that we were not intended to have carries with it the assumption of our ability to save ourselves. to make a covering that will suffice, that will solve the problem, hide our guilt. The first sin was a lack of belief in God's word shown by Adam's refusal to exercise the role God had given to him. I think the second, if, if, if we want to try to quantify it, is the attempt to cover their own sin. The curses have not yet been pronounced, but... Between Genesis 2.25 and 3.7, it's clear that something has changed and it's awful. Right? It's very clear. Before God even shows up on the scene to address it. In just one chapter, we went from 
naked and unashamed, to clothed yet covered with shame. You ever thought about how the wisdom of God that permeates everything, even the clothes we wear, these clothes, every day of our lives, are evidence that all is not well with creation. You you can't avoid the curse. Sin first came into our world by the desire to set the clear word of God against itself in the name of self-identification. That's the essence of evil. I will determine what is right on my own. I will determine what is good. I will determine what is evil. Even if it contradicts the clear word of God. But when we reached our hand into the cookie jar, we found out very quickly that there's nothing here sufficient to cover our shame. There's nothing here that can restore what we lost by our disobedience. Nothing. And all people are doing every second of their lives is trying to find a covering good enough to hide their shame, their lack of an identity. That's all human beings do. When we tried to progress upward by our own understanding and desire to be autonomous, we fell down backwards. It was not the serpent's strategy to imply that God wasn't there. That's a stupidity unique to humans. Right? It was never his strategy to imply there's no God. His strategy was to indulge the human desire that was there even in the garden to question God's revelation, to add to it. That's when he showed up. Our fundamental issue then has always been and will always be unbelief, a lack of faith in the word of God. That's what killed us in the garden. Paradise was when God as our sustainer and provider was plenty for us. That was paradise. We are not gods. Why? That's, that's why we love those superhero movies so much. Right? They just make us feel like they, they, they project this potential that we have of, of what we wish we could be. Right? I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to follow that rabbit trail at night, but it's all there. It's in all the myths. That, that's why when we create gods, they're capricious and silly and they're not omnipotent. They're not omniscious. They're, they're, we're projecting onto our God what we want him to be like so that we can rule, so that we're ultimate, so that we're autonomous and sovereign. We are not gods. We're not God. The knowledge withheld from us will kill us if we try to grab it. We can't handle it. There's no way to get control of this knowledge, to be the arbiters of it. That's why everything is so messed up, because human beings are insufficient to always and exhaustively tell the difference between right and wrong. But since we want to be autonomous to the point that it's made us insane, we keep trying. We keep trying to be autonomous. How much has to break down? How much has to fail? How many people have to die before we realize we were created to exercise dominion in dependence on God, not independence from God? 
And now we're all failure and fig leaves and death. And the oppressive irony of the curse and its futility, we keep trying to cover our shame and reclaim paradise by covering up who we really are while simultaneously somehow believing we're good enough to get the job done. Just schizophrenic everybody is. We need a savior. Because God can see through fig leaves. We need someone to clothe us, forgive us, restore us. And then obviously, because we'll blow it even if we don't have a tainted will. We need somebody to be obedient for us. Because even before we had a sin nature, we became sinners. Just ponder that. How much more when we're born with the rebellion in our blood? Right? Adam and Eve got behind the eight ball. You and I are born behind the eight ball. That, beloved, is the beauty of Jesus Christ for us. Because, listen to this sentence. When the facts warrant death, God insists on life for his creatures. Psalm 103, 13 and 14. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. I mean, what, honestly, let's look in the mirror. How, how optimistic can you be about the potential of dirt? To this day, think, to this day, how do we try to earn love? By hiding ourselves. Keeping the real us from being visible. By pretending. By putting on airs, etc., etc., since the day we walked out of Eden, we've been trying to earn love by concealing our weakness. When it turns out that God's love for us is because of our weakness. And the storyline of the Bible is, is what? It's sinful man going from fig leaves to animal skins to the whitewashed robes given to us by Jesus Christ. That when he's clothing us at the end of the story... It's because of the fig leaves at the beginning of the story. What we use to cover our shame will never deliver. It will never be enough. Sin is too much for us. The curse is inescapable. But what God uses to cover our shame will save and set free and deliver and forgive and restore. We are sinners. We are cursed. The facts warrant death. But God gives Life to the dust. Rejoice, beloved. We lost paradise, but we never owned it. It has always been God's to give or to take away. And he sent another son, another Adam, who brings us back. Not because we earned it, but because the God who made the heavens and the earth is compassionate to the dust. He is our only hope to be covered when all we are is cursed. We cannot deal with our shame. We can't deal with it. But God can. God would. And God has. Believe on him. Believe on him.
Let's pray before we sing. If you need to pray for any reason, I'll be down front. Please come. Father, we thank you for what you've chosen to reveal to us about who we are, but also about who you are. Lord, we're so thankful tonight that the story does not end in our disobedience, but in Christ's obedience, Father. You send him as the new head of a new race that will never be lost. And so, Father, we thank you tonight, and I pray for everyone in this room. I pray that if there are any covered in shame, that, Lord, whether they come forward or not, you would set them free through Christ. Set them free. I ask this in his name for our sakes. Amen.